Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek podcast where we talk about advertising, marketing, media, pop culture, technology, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me, as always, is Tim Nudd, our creative editor. Tim, how are you? I'm good, David. Belated Merry Christmas to you. Yeah. Did you guys have a good Christmas? We had a lovely Christmas. Thank you. We were here in Maine. We didn't travel, which always makes for a good Christmas. And uh, kids had fun. And yeah, it was lovely. How about yourself? Yeah, I was up in Chicago, which got a lot of snow, um, unlike my home of Alabama, where I think we set record high temperatures of like 78. So my sister and I were exchanging a lot of photos back and forth of like our very different uh, Christmases with the kids. Uh, But it was fun. Uh, The kids got to build snowmen and forts and all that fun stuff. So they got to live the the winter dream and uh for you know a few days at least and then it rained really hard and it all melted but <laughs> all right. it's good to be back and uh you know mentally preparing myself for 2017 uh usually we have a fine panel of our colleagues from Adweek uh this week it is just me and Tim things are still pretty quiet coming in after the holiday uh but Tim thanks for making time for it and we will uh just kind of dive in see what we got on the docket this week uh we're going to be talking about the trends that defined 2016 uh across the most of the major fields we cover, creativity, media, technology. Uh, we're also going to look at some of the better holiday cards that come out of the agency world. This is something that uh, is always a fun little outing for them uh, each year. See, you know, sometimes it's a literal card. Usually it's something a little more interactive. And so Tim's going to be rounding those up for us. But first, let's look at the news. It was a uh, big holiday season for Amazon. I'm sure everyone probably experienced that anecdotally, but the numbers are in. They're saying that they uh, shipped over 1 billion items worldwide this holiday season. Uh, And uh, part of the reason that they're pushing this out so hard is probably because their number one selling items were uh, Amazon's own voice-activated devices. Uh, Number one was the Dot, which is the $50 version of their Alexa devices. Uh, Then the $130 Tap, which is a kind of a portable speaker version, and then the larger $180 Echo, the full device. Uh, Those sold at a rate nine times higher than last holiday. They did come out last year, uh, but really obviously have just kind of come into the mainstream 
uh, here in 2016, uh, we named the Echo the uh, the hottest uh, gadget of the year. Uh, and uh, it's interesting to see that uh, the the rest of you know kind of popular culture is really caught caught on with that trend. Uh, some interesting numbers came out of Amazon's releases uh, about their success this year. They had 200,000 employees and 45,000 robots, or robotic units at least, working from 20 different locations. Uh, but one thing I was most curious, to, Tim, to get your thoughts on is you know, what this means for Google. I thought it was really interesting. I actually bought my dad a Google Home. Uh, not, not out of any real preference from one device or the other. I just, I, you know, I thought that Google would be kind of a reliable choice, and it's something where he's he's already kind of tied into the Google ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this did leave me wondering, you know, is Amazon's well, like one thing I noticed when I went to buy it was that you could buy the Google Home from anywhere except Amazon. Like, like <laughs> right. anything else you would order from Google, like would have the option to order it from the Amazon store. This was the one notable exception. Uh, so That's by funny. kind of blockading out uh, Google, you know, is Amazon going to really limit their ability to make the home a a successful competitor device? I mean, what do you think? Well, first of all, it's funny how Amazon and Google are battling. You mentioned uh, them being blocking each other out. You know, I I can't stream Amazon shows through my Chromecast either. So there's definitely a a trend of, of, you know, of not being particularly friendly towards each other. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, the voice activated devices are so hot right now. I couldn't go anywhere this, this whole holiday without seeing one at at people's houses or, or people talking about that they got one. And, you know, I think Amazon certainly is in the driver's seat with this, uh, ahead of Google. They were obviously out ahead of Google and the echo has such great word of mouth. And I, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't completely love it. Uh, several families that I know, um, we, we don't have one, but um, fam- some, several families in this neighborhood, um, they can't stop talking about it. And it's so central to family life. Like the kids can use it. The, the, the parents use it. Uh, it becomes kind of this real home hub, I think. And, you know, but it's interesting that you said that you got your dad a Google Home. And it sounds like basically just based on his, his existing ecosystem plus the value of the Google name. And those two things are pretty valuable. Um, when it comes to, you know, the expanding market for these devices. So, you know, I think Google Home ha- potentially has, um, you know, just in terms of brand brand name value and, and Google, you know, uh, glasses aside, they, they make uh, pretty popular uh, devices. And, and uh, I mean, the Pixel is out now. So Google is kind of moving into hardware. And I wouldn't count them out by any means. I mean, they're an enormous company with great creative talent and, uh you know, I, I haven't used either device, so I don't really have that much of an informed opinion on what on what makes them different. Um, but, you know, the Echo is further along the road. And f- from everything I hear about the Echo, uh, it, you know, Amazon certainly will, will, will give Google a huge fight for this market. In uh, kind of some, some uh, sad news, this has obviously been a year of celebrity uh, deaths. Uh, it's become a bit of a meme, uh, even about how, how vile 2016 is. By the numbers, I don't really know if 2016 has taken more celebrity lives than any other year, but it certainly was a year that a lot of the most kind of creative and inspirational uh, figures passed away, starting, of course, with David Bowie and Prince early in the year, and then it just seemed to keep going. Uh, this week, we lost Carrie Fisher at age 60. She was, of course, Princess Leia on Star Wars, uh, but uh, had a 
really robust uh, career, considering the many difficulties that, uh, you know, most of the Star Wars people, both uh, she and Mark Hamill, really struggled to kind of define their career after Star Wars uh, and away from it, unlike uh, Harrison Ford. But what really interested me and the reason I wanted to talk about her a little bit is because I've loved seeing that it's not just the nostalgia of people saying, oh, I loved Princess Leia. A lot of people have been talking about she was this first iconic, strong female character that they remember really being celebrated in Hollywood. And, of course, there's, you know, some gender debate around Princess Leia's character. Uh, You know, of course, you know, having her in a bikini uh, in Return of the Jedi, uh, you know, some people feel is is sexist. Other people feel, you know, if you can strangle a... uh, Uh, you know, galactic gangster in a bikini. You can do just about anything. Uh, And she was also very uh, ahead of her time, I think, in terms of being very open about her struggles with mental illness and with addiction. Uh, You know, I remember seeing that stuff when I was a young teenager, uh, you know, watching Postcards from the Edge and and hearing more about her life and just seeing someone be so open about what they were going through at the time was really – different. And you just didn't hear that with that level of frankness. And they weren't looking for anything. They just wanted to talk about it. Uh, And then now that's a bit more of the norm. Uh, But I think back then she was uh, really ahead of her time in that regard as well. What what are some of your kind of iconic Carrie Fisher memories, Tim? Well, I mean, first of all, she, you know, she died at 60 years old, which is definitely um, tragically young. Um, But yeah, even, you know, I was uh, five years old when Star Wars came out. And you know, I think it was defining for a lot of uh, not just young girls, but young boys to see um, that kind of character. Uh, it was, you know, Star Wars from the beginning was a very male dominated universe. And to have this character who was not only beautiful, but smart and 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 gritty and just had uh, was was could do anything that the men could do in that universe was really, um, you know, in the 70s and 80s. That was that was sort of ahead of its time. And then she was, a, you know, clearly a heroine off screen, too, with her as you mentioned, with her uh, str- struggles with mental illness and helping other people with that. Um, I think she was, you know, so central to, um, to, to, to culture over the last couple of decades. And it was difficult for her, I think, to, to, to move beyond Star Wars, but I think she did. And, of course, Star Wars is everywhere. I mean, my kids, um, one of my sons was putting together the, uh, the Han Solo Carbonite Chamber uh, Lego set this week. And so that's, you know, one, one step removed from Princess Leia. So, I mean, it's still such a, I mean, and Rogue One just came out. I mean, the whole universe is still um, so central to people's uh, experience today. Um, but yeah, a wonderful woman, um, fa- famous famous for a great sense of humor, uh, and just a great take on, on um, you know, media. She had, she had such an interesting viewpoint on media and, uh, the, you know, the, the, the craziness of, of Hollywood fame, which she experienced firsthand, of course. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a great loss, incredible loss um, to the Hollywood community and to everybody, really. The, well, you know, one of my favorite things about uh, her portrayal of Princess Leia, and, and this goes to the writing as well, but I just love going back and rewatching New Hope. You really appreciate how she is just kind of this unflappable character. You know, she cannot be intimidated. And, you know, you've got right at the very beginning, she's being uh, captured by Vader. She's being interrogated by by Tarkin and by Vader and this, you know, torture bot. And she, the whole time, she is just not just 
you know, refusing to give in to them, but is indignant and is making fun of them. And even when she's rescued on the, you know, on the Death Star, she kind of has this indifference of like, uh, I guess, you know, if, if you're the best I'm going to get. And then she, <laughs> you know, quickly like gets tired of how bad they are at breaking her out and like grabs the gun. And, you know, it's just, there's so much subtle nuance to that character that really makes her. And, and again, you know, I'll give credit to the writing uh, to George Lucas for that. But in the end, I really think it was how masterfully she per- portrayed that character and then kept her interesting over the course of you know all three movies and then and then uh you know in episode 7 as well. Well, you also think about um you know as you mentioned the the gender debate and female empowerment has been such a big theme in culture and in, and in marketing too over the past couple of years. Um companies like Goldie Blocks saying you don't have to be a princess, you don't have to go try to find a prince, you know, talking to girls. I mean, you know, Leia was the ultimate princess who was much more than a princess and this was 40 years ago. So, I mean, talk about, you know, uh, being way, way ahead of your time in, in that regard. And not, not to say that other movie franchises and, and different movies dating back even further didn't have strong female characters. They certainly did. Um, but to have a, a woman who is specifically a princess be also, also be an incredible fighter and just one of the most brave characters in your movie uh, was super refreshing, incredibly refreshing. And, and you know, you also mentioned the, the, the whole bikini thing. I mean, Carrie had such a good outlook on that too. She's like, well, yeah, I was, I was in a bikini because I was a slave and I didn't want to be in a bikini. And I eventually got out of it and murdered the guy that (laughs) that put me in a bikini. (laughs) So it wasn't exactly like, uh, I mean, I I can see the, the the argument that, you know, it was that that whole scene was designed to be titillating to a degree. Um, but, but for the character, I mean, it's not like, you know, she, she did, she wanted to be in that situation. She, uh, I mean, it was, you know, pretty remarkable how she played that whole thing. Also, uh, some, uh, some last bit of pop culture news, uh, just to recap 2016's TV performance, um, Walking Dead uh, kept its crown as the the most watched show, uh, especially among the coveted eighteen to forty nine demo. This is the the demographic that uh, that marketers and and television producers really are uh, most focused on. And uh, um, in that crowd, uh, Walking Dead got eleven point three million uh, viewers uh, per week and uh, eighteen million overall. So those are some staggering numbers. Uh, Tim, have you kept up with Walking Dead this season? I've kind of dropped off. I've dropped off as well, and. And I'm curious about those numbers, whether they uh, are boosted mostly by the numbers last spring, which was the tail end of the previous season um, versus uh, the first half of this season. You know, they had a very sort of um, strange cliffhanger uh, at the end of the last season that then was played out in extremely gory fashion uh, at the beginning of this season that, that premiered this fall. And I mean, this, to me, the show is 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 feels like it's on life support in a way. I just don't feel like it's as compelling as it used to be. I, I think the characters, to some degree, were always a bit two dimensional, but now the, the you know the storylines don't really head anywhere. They seem to be moving in circles. So I wonder if you know, from what I understand, I think the the, the viewership is down this year, and I think you know that first first episode of this season, I think turned a lot of people off, and I think that they, a lot of people talk about how it crossed a line for them and they just, they don't really uh, get the, the, you know, enjoyment. Um, it's, of course, it's always been a gory show, but the, it's the gore and the violence is always sort of tapped out at a certain level, which I think this, this year kind of went a little bit beyond. Um, 
So you, you haven't been keeping up with it either? Yeah, we, we kind of fell off like a lot of people did after the first few episodes. Uh, we, we don't have cable. And so for us, this is one of the few shows we actually pay to buy uh, every episode in advance. We buy the whole season in advance. And so it's money we've already spent to watch this. And we just, you know, we watched the first few. And then Westworld came along and we we uh, kind of binged on that instead. And every time we had a, a limited opportunity to watch TV, there was always something else. Uh, a lot of new stuff coming out on Netflix. And, yeah, just, you know, to, to take your metaphor a little farther, I would say it's uh, Walking Dead's a bit of a, a husk of itself, staggering around, uh, <laughs> you know, just looking to feast on the flesh of other TV shows. No, I mean, it's... Um, it's a bit of a zombie in a well. Yeah, in the well, yeah. Um, it, it's I It could bounce back. There certainly have been bad seasons. I mean, if anyone wants to revisit how bad Walking Dead can get, go back and watch season two. Uh, mm-hmm. which is is real bad. Um, but it recovered. And so they, they chugged through a lot of showrunners early in that show's run. And uh, and it really shows in terms of how inconsistent those early seasons were. Uh, I think they've had a strong few seasons. But, you know, yeah, this may be the year, the, the, the last year that we see these kinds of insane numbers uh, for Walking Dead because it does feel like it's just lost that cultural, you know, vibrance that, that everyone wants to come back to. Uh, kind of rounding out the, the rest of the year's most watched shows. This is from a, a roundup uh, from Jason Lynch, our TV writer. Uh, they, they posted on adweek.com. Uh, and Sunday Night Football on NBC was second among the 18 to 49 demo with uh, 8.7 million uh, viewers. And in terms of other shows, uh, that was followed by Fox's Empire and CBS's Big Bang Theory uh, and then HBO's Game of Thrones. Uh, so all three of those obviously are kind of... Uh, consistent uh, breadwinners for those networks. Uh, And then NBC had a really good debut with This Is Us, uh, which was one of the top shows of the year. got 4.9 million viewers in the 18 to 49 demo uh, and uh, helped NBC really uh, retain some strong numbers this year. So there's kind of a roundup of of where we're at, but I do have a feeling that these numbers are going to be very different next year. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of kind of change up in in terms of what uh, are, are the biggest shows on television. But that uh, we will save for next year. And for now, I want to move on. Normally, we would go to our ads worth watching section. This is where we uh, have Tim run down the the ads that are actually worth taking the time to go back and watch from the past week. But it's been a holiday, a little slow time for ads. And instead, Tim has been focusing his energy on something else a little different, which is collecting all the different agency holiday cards uh, from, from the agency world. Uh, as I mentioned up front, these are ones that sometimes are literal cards, but usually are something a little more involved either it's a a big packet that you get in the mail that they send out to press like us or uh, and to their clients or it's a website or it's a mobile app or whatever so uh tim i was actually traveling when you posted your roundup this year so these are all going to be surprises for me which i'm excited about so tell us about some of the best holiday cards this year Yes, so every year we collect agency holiday cards, and so many agencies do this now. And uh, David, as you said, a lot of them are very interactive and kind of cool. We take a little different approach every year. Sometimes we just highlight a few, but this year we actually posted, I think, about 75 of them. So that was uh, an enjoyable couple of days checking them out. And I did have a few uh, favorites. I'm not going to mention all 75, but... um, of course, we got several uh, with, the, with the Mannequin Challenge, and there was an agency in Wisconsin called Affirm Agency, A-F-F-I-R-M, that did a really cool uh, Mannequin Challenge, kind of rose above the others, so we, we highlighted that one. Uh, AKQA, the um, fantastic digital-focused agency, uh, created uh, a, a holiday campaign called The Snow Fox, and this is an app 
that uh, launches a children's story, and your, as your child reads it, um, it it recognizes the child's voice and it moves the story along after the after uh, your kid kind of reads each sentence, which is kind of neat. Uh, Anomaly made uh, this pretty cool, funny video called the, uh, "The Twelve Days of Christmas: A Tale of Avian Miser- Misery," and it, it was uh, the actress Phoebe Waller-Bridge, uh, which. A lot of people may know from um, she was the creator of Fleabag, uh, which is streaming on Amazon now. It's an amazing British show that everyone should check out. Yeah, not to not to get on a tangent, but I hear that show's uh, awesome. Yeah, it was really really good. It's only six episodes. You could probably watch it all in one go. And it's it's you know we, when you mentioned the TV shows earlier, um, that's definitely one worth watching. It's on Amazon. Um, but she, so she narrates this version of the 12 days of Christmas, which is kind of a nightmare scenario where her boyfriend actually takes it literally and buys her the, the 12 things over and over. And, uh, it's pretty funny, pretty funny to watch. Um, Brunner and white, uh, white 64, two different agencies, um, kind of did parodies of the self-driving car phenomenon lately. And they, they both imagined, uh, Santa's self-driving sleigh, which probably was, a. Uh, you know, pr- pretty obvious one, but but pretty humorous too. And and by the way, we got so many again about how Santa needs a rebrand. We probably got five or six agencies kind of offering their thoughts on the fact that Santa is uh, his brand is kind of outdated and he needs a new brand. So that's not. If anyone is thinking of doing that next year, please don't. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, Connolly Partners uh, did a, an amusing one where they. Um, it was hashtag can it gift wrap where they got together um, and and basically tried to wrap really strangely shaped items, uh, including Thanksgiving leftovers, uh, a balloon, a dinosaur, and a toy car. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, Damasmo Goldstein did bipartisan holiday cards. Now there were a few politically themed uh, holiday cards this year. So this one was a card that you would send to someone who had uh, opposing views as you. And these were very comical. One of them, one of them read, may your holidays be as full of surprises as Trump's Twitter feed. Uh, So they were sort of designed to, to, you know, be unifying in a humorous way. And actually YNR did a sort of a similar thing, uh, a little bit more heartfelt, I suppose, and less comical. It was the the campaign was called uh, make peace with 2016. And it was designed to help, um, you, you know, you send a card to someone you disagree with during the year. And as you did that, um, it, it would actually make a donation to UNICEF on that person's behalf to, to start the new year a little better. So that was pretty interesting. Um, what else? Uh, you, David, you probably heard that Maurice Levy did did his uh, annual uh, year-end address to the Publicis Network. Uh, this is going to be his last one, actually. He's, he's going to be retiring from Publicis in the coming year. And uh, at the end of that one, he there was an Airbnb tie-in where he is offering up his apartment um, for 24 hours. It is his Champs-Élysées apartment. Um, so that was sort of cool. Um, Rethink, the Canadian agency, um, created this thing called Ginger Pong, where they made a gingerbread, um, a, a, a giant gingerbread ping pong table that's actually usable. They baked, they even baked the rackets and everything. So that was kind of cool. And uh, I think my favorite one, though, was um, this agency in St. Louis. It's actually a, a production house in St. Louis called Bruton Stroby. And um, two producers, apparently, uh, at, at, at Bruton Stroby just got married last weekend. And uh, the agency interviewed them uh, about how they met. And it had, uh, it had a, a Christmas tie-in. And it was about a four or five minute video. And it was really, really well done. Like, all, this, all the scenes of them meeting up were, were reenacted. And... Uh, 
the woman, uh, as part of the couple, she got the sort of uh, Maria uh, Bamford kind of vibe. And the whole video was done super well. So if anyone hasn't seen it, I would go check it out. It's uh, just just uh, search for Bruton Strobe, B-R-U-T-O-N, um, and then S-T-R-O-B-E. And check out their, their holiday Christmas card. It's on Vimeo. It's also on adweek.com. Um, definitely a highlight this year. Nice. Well, thanks so much for rounding those up. I'm looking forward to. I, I just got back into town late last night, uh, so I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, catching up on a lot of the 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 roundup of that. And then also, you uh, did a, a a admirable effort of rounding up all of our most read stories uh, from the past year across uh, advertising, branding, uh, technology, media, and I always uh, love going back through and scrolling back through those. So you can see all that on Adweek.com. But definitely uh, look up uh, Adweek holiday cards. Uh, for 2016 and check out Tim's just never-ending roundup. It just goes on forever and just so many fun ideas in there. And like he said, some uh, good reminders of what not to do uh, next year <laughs> yeah. or what's already been done better than uh, than others. Uh, w- when I was at an agency, I think my favorite one that we did you you may or may not remember this. It, we reenacted Elf because uh, this is back before Elf had kind of gotten its real second wind. And I remember at the time our younger employees were like, you know, so into it. And they kept quoting it all the time. And I was like, what are you guys even talking about? They're like, Elf? (laughs) I said, Elf? I mean, it's 15 years old now. So this was, I think at the time it was about, you know, maybe eight or nine years old. And, um, and they were just so passionate about it. So we built this website where it, you could tag different scenes from Elf and reenact them on Instagram. And then we would automatically pull your photos into each scene. So it would be like a carousel of all the different uh, scenes that of people reenacting them. Mm-hmm. And then we just, of course, like a lot of it was us from the agency just going around. There's one where I'm sitting in the CEO of, of the agency. I'm like wearing the full Elf costume and sitting in his lap. Uh, and he's, uh, <laughs> you know, he's playing the Bob Newhart role. And like there was just, we had a, we had a ton of fun with it. But that was, that was one where I remember. We, you know, we did a, it put a lot of energy into this every year because it is supposed to be one of those times that really highlights your creativity and just right. your fun and and show remind your clients really more than anybody that you uh, that you're you know you're focused on creativity and having uh, fun and you know hopefully on a budget. Uh, so it's a always a fun effort. So thanks for rounding those up. Of course, we're going to move on uh, similarly to uh, our roundup of creative trends and uh, other trends from the year. So let's move on to our look back at 2016. So first, uh, at uh, risk of making you go horse from having to talk too much today, Tim, uh, I did want to have you recap some of your uh, creative trends. This is something I look forward to every year where you look back at the trends that really shaped uh, the year in terms of uh, marketing. And this is a, a pretty subjective list. It's one that you and I kind of debate throughout the year of, of what is a trend versus something that just pops up mm-hmm. uh, in one or two instances. And I always like how you uh, keep the list uh, pretty diverse in terms of uh, summer you know, more technical trends. Some are more about the messaging. Yep. Uh, obviously, politics was a big thing this year mm-hmm. uh, that, that really shaped a lot of that discussion. But uh, why don't you tell us about, we don't have to walk through all 20, but tell us about the few that you think were really kind of most visible or in, in some ways most uh, subtle. Sure. So I, I think uh, one way to approach it is to kind of think about uh, different themes and then different formats. Uh, maybe we could talk about formats first, because obviously square and vertical video were, were very big this year, you know, mobile apps like Instagram and Snapchat. I mean, this had been coming for a while, um, but, you know, vertical, um, you know, the best the best ad on the Super Bowl was a vertical spot. It was Jeep's portraits commercial. And, you know, Instagram inspired a ton of square creative. 
Um, you know, Goodby Silverstein created uh, the Square Shakes for Sonic, which is one of the most, you know, one of the coolest design projects of the year. I thought that was inspired by Instagram. So, you know, 16 by 9 is, is not going anywhere, but but Square and Vertical Video, um, we saw some great creative, uh, uh, you know, creative executions in, in those formats too this year. Um, also, live ads, obviously, were, were such a big deal. Um, live streaming in 2016, uh, brands, you know, started to wrap their heads around Facebook Live and, and Periscope. And they also produced some pretty interesting live commercials. And I think, you know, the most impressive going back to the Grammys way back in February was uh, Target and Deutsch created that um, live four-minute music video um, with Gwen Stefani. And that was, you know, an amazing uh, technical accomplishment and just, you know, tied into the idea that, that the immediacy of live broadcasting is something that brands really want to tap into now. And, you know, on a very different note, um, over in England, uh, the, 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 the supermarket grocer uh, Waitrose um, did a really interesting campaign that I enjoyed. Didn't get a ton of press, but I thought it was fascinating. Uh, Adam and Eve DDB uh, worked on it, and they broadcast live from their partner farms for an entire week. So you could go onto YouTube and and check out all the farms where Waitrose gets its produce from. And it was amazingly um, boring and quiet, but I loved it. I mean, I just I loved the idea of it. And they took the the concept to extremes where they would. Uh, um, they would create print ads um, where the, the photograph and the print ad had to have been taken with, you know, within 24 hours of the of the publication coming out. So every, the whole idea was 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 around freshness, and I love that idea that that you could use um, live broadcasting and live photography um, to to create a message around freshness and, and uh, also transparency, honestly. So that was really cool. So those were kind of the formats. Um, you know, I think if you talk about, uh, I think packaging is another interesting. Um, you know, marketing format, and there was there was a lot of interesting um, you know innovations there this year, particularly in cans. I mean, soda and beer companies um, did all this crazy uh, packaging on cans. You know, the Bud Light NFL cans were, were huge this year. Uh, Orangina made this really cool upside down can that you had to flip over to drink, which automatically mixed up the pulp in the Orangina. So that was a pretty cool thing. And then uh, I'm sure David, you remember the the six pack ring that. Um, saltwater brewery made um yeah the the edible by fishes and turtles right? exactly yes it was made of um instead of plastic it's made of this biodegradable material made of grains left over from the brewing process and it's totally edible to sea life and you know not a can but can related so that was um pretty cool packaging too so yeah a lot of innovation in formats and then you know in terms of themes this year um certainly we we saw a continuation of empowerment themes like diversity and, and, and female strength. Um, you know, at the very beginning of the year, Axe launched uh, Find Your Magic, which really kicked the year off in a very inclusive way. Uh, H&M did the She's a Lady spot out of Forsman and Bowden Fours. Uh, Widening Kennedy did the stress test work for P&G's Secret. So, you know, at a time when, you know, famously the culture, particularly the political culture in this country was so divided, um, you know, the marketers were, were broadcasting a, a lot of, of, of messages of, of diversity and inclusiveness. And, and it came full circle at the end of the year with with Amazon ha- having a big, pretty big hit with its interfaith spot showing a, a priest and, a, and an imam um, exchanging gifts uh, at the end of the year. So um, certainly empowerment. And then, you know, um, disability was at the forefront of a lot of messaging this year. Obviously, the Paralympics had a lot to do with that. Uh, Channel 4 over in the UK did their follow-up to the to the 2012 Superhumans ad, um, which was amazing. 
And, you know, Lego uh, came out with a, a disabled minifigure. Uh, there was this amazing candy campaign over in the UK from Maltesers that, that had uh, disabled people as the stars. A very, very funny campaign, too. And then Burger King uh, had the, the king using sign language. So really, all over the place, you could see, um, you know, celebration of people with disabilities overcoming their obstacles. And then, of course... You, you know not, Sorry, not to uh, no, I, say, uh, I just before you move on past kind of inclusiveness and mm -hmm. um, and diversity, you know, there's been we've been wondering about kind of how the tenor of that, you know, over the, you, you remember obviously when Cheerios had an interracial couple what two years ago, mm -hmm. and and it was controversial and it was you know it's part to the point where it's it's a little silly like I mean my family is very interracial and so it just you know it's one of those things where it's it's hard to imagine that we still live in a world where um, you know where that's that's such a point of debate, but it clearly was, and mm -hmm. then that really started this trend, or at least accelerated this trend of brands really embracing diversity and in different kinds of families and disability. And you know, I've been curious to see uh, a lot of that. I feel has been fueled by this uh, this culture of the Obama presidency of of celebrating diversity, and then now moving into this uh, this world of the Trump presidency. Uh, you know, we've asked some of our readers on on Twitter, and we've got some mixed reactions. Where I said, you know, do you think uh, that this is going to continue, that that brands will continue to really push acceptance and tolerance and diversity uh, and gender, especially, you know, embracing things like transgender. And a lot of people feel, oh, you know, that's that has nothing to do with the presidency. And, and I kind of disagree. I, I feel like it becomes more bold. Uh, like right now, it's it's really not as as bold for a brand like H and M to do this stuff, uh, or maybe not H and M, but you know, an Amazon or something. It's it's there's no real risk involved other than a few people grumbling about it. Uh, but when you've got you know a president who's calling together all these tech leaders, who's kind of dictating how he wants things to go and the kind of messaging he wants out there, and then calling out brands on Twitter when he's angry at them mm -hmm. and causing these boycotts against Kellogg or uh, you know that wasn't him specifically, but Breitbart declaring more on Kellogg. And, you know, I really do think it's going to become a bigger risk. And the, the, the danger there is that you end up with one, all it takes is one client in the room to say, yeah, you know, that's nice, but that feels very 2016. Let's just mm -hmm. go a little safer and just have white people sitting around eating cereal. You know? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, what's your take? Do you yeah, think that's going to change? I mean, I, that's a good point. I think suddenly when you have an administration that maybe doesn't uh, represent the interests of diversity as, as much as the previous one, suddenly your, your brand messaging becomes an opposition statement in a way, and some brands are not going to be comfortable with that. Other brands may see an opportunity in that, though, and say, you know, my... This is what I believe in. I mean, um, Bezos and Amazon, like that's, you know, that's what they believe in. And, and I don't see that changing, you know, maybe for, for brands that aren't uh, as committed to it already, maybe they don't, they, they won't get into that kind of messaging, but, um, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's not an easy call. Um, but I also think that the other point to be made here is that um, back in 2013, when the Cheerios ad came out, it was a little shocking to those of us who thought that those days were over, but clearly they weren't over. And it goes back to the sort of bubble that we've found ourselves living in, uh, that the people who oppose those kinds of ideas maybe have found their voice now. You know, I, I posted a, a tweet yesterday about uh, uh, Cinnabon, um, you know, reacting to Carrie Fisher's death with sort of a what I considered a pretty tacky uh, tweet about her, you know, about her buns. Like, and they put... Uh, cinnamon rolls over her over her hairdo and you know i thought it was a little late to a little too soon to be um kind of sexualizing a woman who'd been dead for six hours 
So, but then, you know, I, I posted uh, something about that and, and the, the flood of sort of you should be dead tweets kind of came in and it was just really bizarre that, um, you know, I, I, so I think that, I think the voice of, of anti, you know, tolerance is, is, is probably louder and is going to be louder in the next couple of years than it's ever been in, in recent years. And so I think brands have to do, you know, if they feel like they want to get involved in that, they, I think there is an opportunity to, to support the people that they um, that they feel are, uh, you know, sharing a more positive message. And I think it is incumbent upon brands to help shape the culture and, and they can, they do have the power to do that. And so, you know, even if the president is, uh, you know, ha has the capability of sort of calling you out, if he, if he, if he doesn't want, uh, you know, if he's upset with you, I think that's a risk that uh, is worth taking if you're a brand. Yeah. And I think you see these, uh, issues really play out at some of these major conferences where a lot of brand marketers get together. And over the last two years, this idea of tolerance and acceptance and, and you know, casting a, a wider net with your customers has been has become a given. And everyone says, well, of course, of course, you're, we're embracing diversity. And of course, we want and, and they are mandating back to their agencies uh, that they want to see more diversity within the ranks of agency employees and leadership and their vendors. Uh, you know, so I, I do think there is a certain amount of I guess you could call it peer pressure, but you know what I mean is that within mm -hmm. the industry, if the tide is moving in one direction, these people who are on the fence will follow their peers because they don't want to be that one person on a panel or at a conference who's like, no, we still haven't put any black people in any ads or we've never really addressed uh, any gay customers. Uh, and, and so, you know, I've wondered if this pull is going to take them away. But at the same time, I think we're in a very different place than we were five years ago in the sense of just maybe not accepting internet uh, hostility, but just acknowledging it and, and realizing that it's not the end of the world, that this stuff is really annoying, but mm -hmm. you know that it's just something you have to live with every day and that you can't build your marketing or your business plans around what a bunch of, of people without photos and fake names on Twitter are going to say about mm -hmm. your identity politics. You know? Yeah, and when, uh, and when Amazon and, and P&G, companies like that, are, you know, are helping to lead the charge, um, you know, for a more accepting society. I think if, if, you know, if you're a brand, a smaller brand, you can sort of take, you know, take faith from that, 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 uh, you're not going to get destroyed if you, if you try to stand up for a cause. Well, sorry, I broke your flow there, but I uh, did want to get no, some no, of your no. thoughts on that. So, yeah, no uh, tell, tell me some other trends. Well, you know, the other, you know, the other empowerment trend I wanted to mention, of course, is uh, female strength. It's, you know, this is a trend in advertising that's been happening for years. Um, but this year, I mean, one of our favorite spots of the year was the Dada Ding commercial, widening Kennedy's uh, commercial for Nike over in India. I think that was our, I think we put that as our number three ad of the year. Yeah. Really amazing. I mentioned the stress test stuff for Secret, also by Widen, really, really cool stuff. Uh, Body Form had that amazing commercial out of uh, AMV, BBDO over in London. So, you know, certainly a trend that's not going away uh, anytime soon. Um, what else? And, and I would still mention just cause it didn't make our final list, but that gymnast ad from Under Armour, um, the, uh, I don't know what the official name for that one was, but, uh, you know, it was, it was part of the, yeah, the same the, campaign with Phelps. Yeah. The rule yourself campaign. They did the, the Phelps ad in the U S gymnastics team. 
Yeah, that gymnastics team ad, if you ever want to see just some pure strength, and I mean that ad just just exudes this this power and and uh, you know physical strength and perseverance uh, in a way that, that every ad kind of wants to but really struggles to. You mentioned Dada Dig is another one that really nailed that. Mm-hmm. But it's so fascinating to be watching that gymnastics ad and, and realizing the, these these women are, you know, 14, 15. I mean, they're very young and yet are accomplishing these feats of physical strength that are just you know fascinating and it's not mm-hmm. this kind of look at these look at these girls with all their you know perseverance it's like no no that this is something you walk away just being like wow that is that is incredibly impressive uh, mm-hmm. so just a, a tremendous ad in the vein of what you're talking about yeah you know another another trend that I saw this year was um, transparency and, and then kind of its opposite uh, uh, deception and some of the more interesting I think creative work this year, embrace those things. First of all, transparency, obviously over the years, um, stuff like the, the old spice campaign has kind of drawn attention to the marketing and the artifice of marketing. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting marketing this year did that, like the, the whole Deadpool campaign. And I know a lot of that was from 2015, but the movie came out early this year. Uh, that that's kind of this very meta, um, marketing campaign and movie that's kind of mindful of its own artificiality. So, so when you say, uh, you know, you're really talking about uh, kind of self awareness and and this meta fourth wall breaking aspects of mar- of acknowledging that this is an ad campaign and then mm-hmm. and then kind of having fun within that vein. Right? Exactly, and like Droga 5's work for Clearasil did that, um, you know, with a, a really fun 60 second ad that said, "We don't understand you teens. We're trying to, we we don't under- we understand you know your your acne, but we don't understand you." It was very very funny, very transparent. In its uh, in its messaging, and then you know in a different uh, kind of a different um, take on transparency, but um, the Swedish number, you know that tourism campaign over in Sweden, uh, where they came up with a phone number for Sweden and invited anybody to call it, and when you called it, you were connected to a random Swede, and you got to just chat about the country uh, with that person. And, and those people were not trained or vetted in any way; they were just all they could sign up for the service. And they could answer the phone and just talk to anyone who wanted to learn about Sweden. And so to me, that's the ultimate kind of transparency in advertising where you, you know, you're not trying to build this sort of artificial messaging. Um, you're just basically connecting people and uh, being completely open about what, you know, what, what, what the country's all about. I thought that was an amazing campaign this year. Yeah, my, my favorite moment in that case study video is when the guy says, like, I don't know, I hate Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> right. But then, you know, this was maybe a bit fanciful, but we, as a counterpoint to transparency, we, we highlighted a couple uh, stories that were really about misdirection or, or deception. And one of them, one of the most notable ones uh, was the Louise Delage campaign on Instagram uh, for Addict Aid. Um, so basically, Addict Aid is a, a company that, that deals with uh, addiction among youth. And they came up with a fake Instagram account of this woman uh, named Louise Delage, and they they seeded uh, this this account and managed. She managed to get a, a several, many thousand followers over the course of two or three months. And uh, at the very end, it was revealed that it was a an anti alcoholism campaign. She wasn't a real person. Uh, in, in I think in every photo, she was holding a drink, and it was um, kind of I think you know it was designed to help people notice maybe you know, problems. Um, if, if you're a friend, if, if anyone, you know, ha- has a problem with alcohol, maybe you, you could notice it through their Instagram. 
Um, but that was sort of a definitely a misdirected uh, messaging that then the, the reveal at the end kind of uh, showed off the, the the scope of the campaign. I thought that was amazing. And, and in a very similar way, I think the Sandy Hook Promise uh, Evan PSA was was quite similar in that sense. It was all about you know maybe you should be more aware of, of your friends and maybe they're having problems that you should notice and, and you, and you're not noticing. Of course, that was the, the BBDO New York PSA where, um, it, it appeared to be a lighthearted love story, uh, about a high school couple. Um, but then it turned out to be sort of anything but that it turned out to be, um, a war, you know, a, an ad about trying to notice warning signs for school shootings. So, you know, as, as a tactic, I think um, misdirection or, or deceit can work and it can create a, an element of surprise that, I mean, both of those campaigns were really, really popular, not, not only among our readers, but all over the world, those campaigns really struck a chord. And so that, that element of surprise um, that sometimes comes with a campaign of deception can be really valuable. Yeah, that's a, that's one of the toughest lines for marketers to walk, right? Is the, is this uh, how do you deceive in a way that's intentional and and kind of helps the? It's something PSAs do all the time. Is this kind of red herring approach of like, oh, it's this. Oh, wait, there's a big twist at the end, and don't text and drive or whatever, you know. And sometimes that feels extremely exploitative. Is probably the number one complaint you hear mm-hmm. about it that that you're feeling like you got misled. The Louise Delage one, you know, we've talked about quite a bit because what's great about that campaign is that they built the base of it. And, yeah, they fooled probably a few thousand people, but it's been viewed by so many hundreds of thousands more since then. So it's not like it was this mass uh, lonely girl 14 kind of uh you know, fake out. It mm-hmm. was something that uh, played itself out. And then the case study of, you know, what happened was more compelling than following it along. So I think, yeah, there was probably some innocent bystanders in the in the sense of people who were like, oh, I thought this was a real person, but they not too emotionally invested either right, way. It's, right. not, <laughs> it's not like that. It's like, oh, never mind this thing you pre-ordered or whatever. It's no, it's, you know, it's just something where at, at the end you're like, oh, oh okay. Um, well, it's, it's just, it's interesting you say that. I mean, it's no, uh, it, it's no coincidence that both of these campaigns were also PSAs where the ends kind of justify the means, you know, um, whereas Another campaign that we wrote about, I think the previous year, um, the Ex Machina campaign down at South by Southwest, where the the robot was was reaching out to people on on Tinder. That was people. I think more people were upset about that being exploitative than they would about this, because you know it's hard to it's hard to uh, criticize a campaign that has you know pretty decent uh, human motives behind it. Yeah, I mean the Ex Machina thing. You know what? what, what so that was using Tinder, basically a bot on Tinder to. Uh, to make people think that she was real, and then at the end revealing she was a, or after a few lines of conversation, revealing that she was an AI uh, as part of this movie. Uh, yeah, our story about that was tremendously popular. It got a lot of pass around because one of our employees uh, kind of discovered it uh, by, by communicating with her. I think the reason that uh, while our own employee, I don't think, was too upset about it, I, I can see someone being like, wait, this, you know, depending on what you had been telling that bot <laughs> right. before you found out, or what photos you had been sending, I don't know, like, um, well, you also just feel like a fool at the end, you know, yeah. which isn't necessarily what you want to be feeling if you're being marketed to. But, you know, the cleverness of it, um, I think some people who were fooled sort of thought it was amusing because it was clever. So, yeah, it's like the difference between you don't want them, to, you don't want your audience to be like, hey. Instead, you want them to be like, hey. It's a slight, <laughs> right. it's a real subtle distinction. That is a good um, difference. 
So, uh, well, we are. Uh, we should probably move on to some other uh, areas of trends. But did you have any any more? Or, or well, the only other one, I'm, you know, there's so much about fine art in in, in advertising this year. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, Leo Burnett created Van Gogh B&B, which was one of the most awarded campaigns of the year. It was a wonderful campaign where they built a, a lifestyle rep, replica, life-size replica of Van Gogh's bedroom for the Art Institute of Chicago, and then they rented it out on Airbnb. I mean, just incredible craft behind that campaign. And then uh, J. Walter Thompson Amsterdam did the next Rembrandt, which was an amazing campaign for uh, the ING Bank, where they had a computer study Rembrandt's works and, and kind of learn them. You know, it was an AI project, and they had the AI cr- create a completely new painting in Rembrandt's style. I thought that was amazing. And then Goodby Silverstein did a VR campaign uh, uh, where they took you inside a Dali painting. It was it was called Dreams of Dali, and that was also really amazing. So, I mean, obviously, two of those three were um, promoting uh, actual art exhibits, so not not too surprising. But I thought it was it was interesting that three of the most creative campaigns of the year all revolved around uh, uh, fine art. Yeah. Did you get to watch the, have, have you done the, the Dolly VR? Experience? Yes, I have. Yeah. It was, it was incredible. I mean, you know, Goodby does such great design work anyway. And this, you know, there hasn't been too many instances, you know, instances of agencies creating really, you know, special VR pieces yet. You know, um, when, when we were at Cannes this year, you know, the, the film jury at Cannes made a point of saying, we didn't see any good VR work. And, and in fact, we I think they awarded one bronze lion to a VR piece, and, and they had openly admitted that it was kind of a token award. So, you know, maybe 2017 is when VR, uh, when agencies, you know, do some more interesting VR work. Obviously, it's in its infancy. Um, same with AI, honestly, and even 360. Um, there's some interesting executions, but nothing that really stands out uh, creatively, except for, you know, this this uh, Dreams of Dolly thing I thought was was. You know, stunning. You haven't gotten to watch it on a on a VR headset, but I sat in on the demonstration at Cannes where they presented it. Facebook presented it as kind of a a great example of of work, and they had kind of they mocked up a bit of a three hundred or a one hundred eighty degree, I guess, theater uh, to watch it. Uh, but I would still love to actually do it with the headset on because it was very surreal, of course, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and very haunting, uh, but really enjoyable. And it was one of the few VR experiences where I've really kind of just relaxed and just enjoyed seeing where it took me, mm-hmm. um, and it got me excited. Like I say, that was the first time I, that a VR thing wasn't just me being like, "Yep, yep, I'm underwater. You know, there's <laughs> there's some fish." All right. Um, all right. Well, thank you, Tim, as always. And I encourage everyone to check out uh, the the 20 uh, creative trends uh, that uh, I believe the headline is the uh, the year in creativity. Uh, 20 trends that drew, 20 trends that drove some of 2016's best marketing. So definitely look that up on uh, adweek.com. Uh, I will quickly touch on our piece that uh, media reporter Sammy Main wrote about the media trends this year. I just wanted to kind of touch on two because they were such a, a big part of the national conversation, um, or, or at least one was, and then the other has been fueling the other. The fake news explosion was such a, a, a huge part of 2016. Uh, there's a lot of different theories on kind of the motivations behind it. Was it foreign governments uh, and foreign players wanting to seed these stories to help disrupt the U.S. election? Was it uh, just people wanting to make money and mm-hmm. creating headlines that they knew people would want to click and then generating ad revenue off of those? That 
is where I believe a lot of the major ad players, a lot of the networks like Facebook uh, and Google are really going to be focusing their efforts on curbing fake news is in identifying those uh, offenders and removing their advertising access. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so basically trying to kind of strangle their their ability to to profit from these things. That said, it really did highlight that people just want – well, it highlighted two things, I guess. One is that we live in a world where you just kind of share information that uh, without really – giving it any any level of scrutiny uh, but especially you know you're not exactly audiences aren't digging in looking for you know uh, for the the source material for where this information comes from but it also highlighted that people just really want news that confirms or conveys their own worldview or their own opinion of a of a candidate of a, of an issue and uh, I, I think it was a, a huge struggle this year of seeing so many people, for us, for journalists, seeing uh, these articles being shared so often, not just by conservatives, although I think a lot of it was being driven by the anti-Hillary uh, camp. But I certainly saw there's there's an image going around that's been going around for like two years of Donald Trump saying, if I ever run, it'll be as a Republican because they're the dumbest people on earth. You know, Donald Trump told Newsweek in 1980, whatever. That's totally fake. That, yeah. that, that never happened. And all it takes is like the least effort to snope that thing and, and it's not true mm-hmm. and and yet I, I was still seeing it shared like the week of the election yeah and, and remarkable to see uh you know facebook's uh about face on that you know zuckerberg originally said uh didn't have any you know it's not a big problem didn't have any uh you know effect on the election and then you know they quickly turned around on that and now they're obviously um going after it very um you know very vocally so We'll see. I mean, it's very difficult to police that stuff, I imagine. So it'll be interesting to see how the, the social networks deal with that in the next few months. Well, and it really highlights this this line between what is fake news and what is satire. You know, it's something that The Onion has always walked that line perfectly of sometimes people believe, especially sometimes that people in other countries believe Onion headlines because they are so believable. Mm-hmm. But when we as a culture see The Onion or we see Clickhole, like I think there's a certain level of of awareness that this is satire. Uh, but, you know, that era of the golden age of satire is long since dead where you had these, you know, magazines and entire satirical publications. And it's actually pretty – it's been pretty rare in the last few years. And so you end up with things – I'm, I'm actually not a fan of the way that the New Yorker or the Borowitz Report, you know, package their their satire because it's coming from NewYorker.com. Mm-hmm. And so you see a headline. You think, oh, that's a legit article. This is the same source where I just read, you know, a 15,000-word opus about the state of the Venezuelan economy and instead it's this completely made up thing and so maybe i'm an outlier in my own kind of audience set of people are like oh this is a hilarious thing i'm like well it's also complete garbage you know it's it's just someone making up a fake thing because they know it'll get passed around and so it's been interesting seeing how people are adjusting the borowitz report to uh their credit is putting a little strip at the bottom of their share image on facebook where it says like not the news <laughs> Which, mm-hmm. you know i don't know if that's enough yeah. uh but it's at least i was like well good on them well, uh, you because know, they're hit. also fake news has been around for a long time but the difference now is that it's really uh infecting the, the political landscape i mean i wrote for people magazine for many years and and fake celebrity news obviously has existed forever you look at uh the National Enquirer, which only occasionally publishes the truth, or and, but there's a slew of websites, dozens and dozens of websites devoted to just coming up with fake stories about celebrities, and you know the, the um, whether it's uh, like rehab stories or pregnancy stories, and I think that is you know uh, a profit play. Uh, they do they do get uh, advertising uh, running on those sites, and so 
you know, obviously, uh, with, with, when it, when it enters the political sphere, the stakes are so much higher and, and, uh, but, you know, eradicating it is such a big, you know, such a big deal. It's, it's going to be such a uh, challenge for all these for all these sites to deal with. The I guess the one big upside for journalists has been that there has been uh, through the, the through Trump's election, there's been this kind of turning point uh, where more people are turning to, uh, you know, kind of reliable press uh, for information. And I think a lot of people are, are uh, who are anti-Trump are going to be really attuned to following every uh, kind of maneuver every move that his administration makes. And so we're seeing uh, a lot more subscribers, both digitally and in print, for the New York Times, uh, for the Wall Street Journal, uh, and then most recently uh, for Vanity Fair, which uh, ran a review calling uh, one of Trump's restaurants the worst restaurant in America. Uh, and then just coincidentally, a few hours later, he tweeted that Vanity Fair is terrible and that the editor should be fired. Uh, and, and so, it, you know, I think we're going to see more and more of that as anytime someone questions his business interests or much less skewers his business interests, uh, you're going to see Trump really coming out against them. That does not seem to be a bad thing for these media. <laughs> right. Every time he does this. So Vanity Fair had, uh, as Sammy Main, our, our uh, media reporter, uh, covered, uh, Vanity Fair had its biggest boost in, uh, in subscriptions, uh, I think, ever uh, in one day uh, after Trump tweeted that. And so I think you're even going to start to see some of the sites like this. Vanity Fair has a long tradition of, of uh, fighting with Trump. And I think you're going to see more of those kind of trolling him, honestly, just knowing that he can't resist the bait and that he will. They've been running ads saying, you know, we're the magazine Donald Trump doesn't want you to read. So it's even going, it's even extending into their marketing. Yeah, yeah. And so um, several more that uh, Sammy uh, rounded up for us. So look for our six trends that define the media industry's chaotic and reflective year, uh, or just Google Media Trends Ad Week, and you'll find it. Uh, and then real quick, because I know we're running out of time, but I did want to touch on uh, some of the, the the tech trends. Of course, uh, Snapchat has been, you know, every year it feels like we talk about the rise of Snapchat, uh, but I do feel like Snapchat uh, had a gigantic year uh, in the sense of its, its uh, ad uh, kind of expansion and, and launching its API, uh, which really enabled uh, brands to, uh, you know, just about any marketers to become part of that ecosystem, which had been very, very small. Uh, Discovery, which is their news platform, has really become much more robust. Uh, it's still mostly uh, cleavage and dating tips, but there is some real good news uh, buried in there. The Wall Street Journal uh, especially has done a fantastic job keeping you know news about Aleppo and some of the other like actual stories kind of hidden in there. So I, I'm hoping to personally see that continue, uh, the, the, the maturation, I guess, of Snapchat over the next year in terms of it being a news platform. I'm really excited to see it continue to kind of... There's only so many uh, Kindle and Kylie updates we really need within Discover, so um, hopefully they will continue to, uh, to, to expand that. AI, of course, uh, was a big part of it, at least what we call AI, what we usually is just um, more, more accurately called algorithms, uh, but something where I, IBM Watson really drove that conversation. Uh, but we're seeing AI become a big part of everything we do uh, and, and in our devices and in uh, kind of the websites we use and just about everything. And I think we're going to continue to see that. We already mentioned live streaming, but I really do think those are going to be two of kind of the biggest trends that marketers are trying to embrace uh, next year. Uh, and uh, uh, hacking and security, I think, is going to – it felt more real this year, obviously, for a lot of the stories. You, you know, some of the biggest hacking stories were really just 
traditional phishing stories, John Podesta getting all of his emails revealed because he fell for one of those, like, you need to reset your password. Um, but there's also, you know, the massive attack on uh, the U.S. kind of infrastructure of the Internet that took down uh, so many major websites. Uh, and it really kind of highlighted that th- this is real. And so typically we've been focusing on from the branding side, uh, the the vulnerability of user data, of credit card data. But I think now we're really going to see that hacking and cyber cyber threats are much more serious in their ability to take down entire uh, kind of business operations. Uh, so definitely check out, uh, I'm barely even scratching the surface here, of our Christopher Heine, our tech editor, did a great roundup on the nine huge digital trends uh, that shaped 2016. Uh, so definitely look those up. Uh, all that's at adweek.com. And uh, we, we have uh, run pretty long today, considering there's just two of us. We found it. sure had a lot to talk about today. <laughs> uh, so thank you, Tim. Uh, I really appreciate you jumping in. And uh, we will be back with a more robust panel uh, soon and get some more staffers rotated in. Uh, don't forget, you can email us anytime at podcast at adweek.com. We love getting your messages, questions, thoughts. Uh, it's podcast at adweek.com. Coming soon, we've got our coverage of CES, the Consumer Electronics Show. We've got a, a whole team going out there. We're going to be doing lots of video coverage and checking out what gadgets and brands and you know, a lot of agencies going out this year. So we'll, we'll be seeing what they're up to. So follow that on adweek.com. Keep an eye out for our CES hub. And uh, that should be off. And then, of course, Super Bowl's coming up so fast. We have launched our Super Bowl ad tracker. Uh, so definitely uh, search for that one and bookmark it because that is the one place where we keep you up to date on every Super Bowl ad, every advertiser, who's coming in, who's not coming back. Uh, and so definitely keep an eye on that. And props again to Sammy Main, uh, who this year has taken on the the uh, Herculean task of keeping that thing up to date. So look for the Super Bowl ad tracker on Adweek. Uh, and that's uh, that's all. We're gonna have a busy, busy January. January is always a, a, a hectic time around here. So looking forward to it. Our theme music is by Home. And uh, please take a moment if you have not to leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, those reviews mean a lot to us, not just personally, but also because they help uh, new audiences discover our podcast. And uh, so we appreciate you if you've left a review. We really appreciate it. If you have not, please take a moment to do so. Thank you as always, and we will talk to you next week. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.